And it also has, for some, some negative connotations to it. And it's like, well, membership, you know, they went through the process of membership. You know, is that painful? Uh, you know, they all survive. Any of them voted off the island? Um, well, we do have a membership process. And I think I put the process generally how it works in your outline there. So let, let me just explain how does one become a member uh, at Lakeview. And then we're going to take some time today to see why it's important to even give attention to this process. Here would be the process. One, attend Lakeview long enough to discern the doctrine, the vision, and the practice of the church. We definitely want you to know something about the church before you decide, I really want to be committed here. Secondly, pray and discern God's leading about your involvement in the church. It should not just be based on my friend or relative goes here or it's, it's nearby my house or, uh, you know, I like the music. Does God want you here? Because everything that you get committed to relationally, and by the way, church membership, being involved in the church, it's a relational commitment. Every relational commitment in your life is going to come a day when you're going to question whether you want to stay in that relationship. Has everybody figured that out so far? Whether it's your best friend growing up, at some point you get in the fist fight and it's almost over, right? You have to decide, where is this thing going to go? You get married, you maybe not get in the fist fight, but you get in some kind of a fight. And you got to decide, am I hanging in here with this thing? Relationships are going to come to a place where you're going to want to find the exit door. That's true in the church as well. It's critical in that moment that you have to entertain the thought, what does God want? You don't just enter and exit marriage based on what you feel like. You don't enter and exit a church based on what you feel like. So God needs to have his say-so in whether or not this is a church for you to be involved with. Third, get involved in the fellowship of the church, not just the Sunday meeting or an alpha meeting. Get involved in the relationship dynamic of the church. The pictures of the body of Christ are very relational pictures. This is... This is an aspect of being the church, being gathered together to corporately worship, to receive teaching and listen to the word of God is an aspect of being the church. It is not, it is not the only aspect of being the church. And so there's much more that has to come when you get to know people and they get to know you in a whole nother realm of experiencing the life of God and the church comes into existence. Number four, attend the new members class to get to know the doctrine and practice of the church more specifically. And we do that twice a year. We'll have one coming up in mid-September. But if you've not been through a new members class, we certainly encourage you to do that. It gives you an opportunity just to, to, to meet all the pastors, to hear specifically what we believe in different categories, to let you ask questions, to make sure you understand that. Uh, number five, provide a testimony of your conversion and water baptism. Uh, to be a member of the church means first to be a member of the body of Christ, to be a member of Christ. And if that's not true, well, then there is no basis for us to share in membership together in the body. So is there a clear testimony of conversion in your life? And have you followed the Lord in the first step of obedience in Scripture to being saved is water baptism? Number six, study the church covenant and our statement of faith, and determine whether you are committed to those beliefs and practices. Right? That there is, as a matter of fact, available in the bookstore, uh, smaller copies of the church covenant that you can take with you and read. There's nine categories of statements that we believe simply reflect the values that are throughout Scripture for the church. So we just gathered them under nine headings, and uh, we actually did a series. The series is available. Individual aspects of the series are all available in the bookstore. You want to be more specific. Well, what does this church believe about this or about that? You know, go look at this. There's a big version of the church covenant that hangs on the wall uh, right across from the bookstore that, that I think will be a memorabilia for us for many, many years to come as the folks who were part of the church during the Katrina era and really uh, sacrificed to rebuild the church signed that document. And we're trusting that 40 years from now, uh, people are going to look and see that, you know, the people, when all of us are gone, probably, uh, there's going to be people inhabiting this building, remembering what did these people believe? What was the emphasis of what they believed and lived their lives toward that helped this building get built? Um, study those things and look at what they say about what we believe and what you believe and compare them to Scripture. 
and find a sense of confidence as to whether you believe what this church believes lines up here. And let me say that carefully. In as nice a way as I can say it, it doesn't really matter whether what this church believes lines up with any of our personal views. Please don't do that. And I know that's common. It's kind of like, well, I believe this and I believe that and this church believes that. You know, listen, it doesn't matter what any of us personally believe because the church is not a social club ruled by majority. It is the gathering of God's people ruled by his word. So it really matters, do we compare well to this? And hopefully you are seeking to walk in what's here. And if those things are in agreement, well, then perhaps you found a place to be involved with. And then seven, uh, join the church as a member, which is what the folks today are doing. And we're going to enjoy praying for them and um, just looking forward to what God has for them as they're part of the church. Now, the question is, that's the process, but why do we have such a process? And when you actually walk through it and you actually have to attend the classes and you have to have read the documents and you have to actually sign it saying, I've read that, I understand it, I'm in agreement with it in my heart, uh, provide all this, it's like, what? Geez, a lot of paperwork. You have to hire an attorney or anything to go through this process at Lakeview? Um, why such a process? You know, for some of us who have lived in the, in the world, kind of the suburban world of doing church, it almost sounds a little heavy-handed, over the top, right? We, I mean, we're used to making decisions about, you know, what supermarket we're going to shop at, you know? Is it close to the house? Can I get in and out? Are the prices decent? You know, what social club am I going to be a part of? Should we join this country club or that one? Uh, should we be a part of the Civic Association or this one? And, you know, you do the paperwork on that kind of stuff. It's quick. You analyze it. You look for a few things, and you move on. And then you come to the church, and it's kind of like, whoa, what the church was supposed to be this comfy, easy thing just to kind of get around and, and you got to do this and this. Is that a good idea? Well, actually, I think it's a very good idea because I would in no way put the church in another category like any of those institutions I just mentioned. The church belongs in a unique place because God has put it in a unique place. God does not think casually about the church and about what it means to be a member of the church. And, and today I felt the need to handle this issue with us because God's view is being diminished in the world in which we live. And, and this idea of being all-inclusive is much more popular in the world today. But when you realize the Bible is a very exclusive book, it's very exclusive the only way any of us would argue with that statement is if we are unfamiliar with the Bible itself and we're only familiar with people who have mishandled the Bible. Right? The Bible's very exclusive. You know, it's a segregationist book. It segregates the human race into two categories. And everybody is in one or the other. And to be in one excludes you from being in the other. So everybody according to the Bible, would fall into the categories of either being in Adam, in humanity's category, or in Christ, in the family of God category. Everyone's in one or the other. Everyone's in a category that ultimately leads toward eternal salvation or eternal judgment. Everyone is in that category, established by the Bible. So this becomes a very important Dynamic for us to understand when we approach church membership that we're hearing the way the Bible talks about the church. Right, so I put a question in your outline. How do you define the church and its place in your life? Look at this thought from Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears wrote a book called Vintage Church recently. It says, if you walk into various churches and ask the people who comprise the church what the word church means the odds are that you will get either a blank stare or a series of conflicting definitions. Sadly, this is even true from their pastors. In preparing for this book, I asked various pastors of some, America, some of America's largest churches, godly men and dear friends, if they have a working definition of the church. And not one of them did. They confessed they were giving their lives to building something for which they did not even have a clear definition. Their response was not surprising 
Because for much of the history of the church, the definition of the church has simply been assumed. Right? Now that would be, I think, a rather true indictment for many, many of us, whether we are leading the church or whether we are just participating in the church. We're just assuming that when we use the term church, that we're all on the same page. That we all kind of believe the same way about it. That we agree that its level of involvement in our lives and our level of involvement in the life of the church, that we all mean the same thing when we talk about the church. But that assumption has led to a huge, huge amount of dysfunction in the church. We need to carefully examine our vocabulary. Do we all mean the same thing? And most importantly, do we mean what God means when he describes the church, its role and its function, and what we're called to, to be a part of it. You know, I think this dysfunction, you know, it's interesting if you, if you look in the history of writings on the church. Uh, I, I think it was Cyprian who writes, oh, in probably the third century, a, a document on the church. And then you go years and years and years up to Wycliffe, about 14th century, who writes a massive document on the church. And there's not a lot written on the church. And, but recently, there is tons being written on the church. If you venture through a bookstore and look at what's being said about the church now, I think because there's so much diversity and so much dysfunction in the church that it's requiring a fresh look at what is the church? How do we go about being the church? I mean, here, I'll just throw a bunch of little books out at you here. This would just be some that I've read in the last couple of years. Right, there's Stop Dating the Church. These are books which I would recommend, by the way. Stop Dating the Church, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, What is a Healthy Church Member, The Living Church, Vintage Church, Why We Love the Church, The Deliberate Church. These would be good books to read. But then there's a whole host, Mark Driscoll, in that quote in your outline, points out a whole host of other books that people are trying to come to grips with a definition for the church. He says, The effort to cultivate the most innovative and effective postmodern church has led to a market of books such as Liquid Church, Emerging Church, Organic Church, Missional Church, Multi-Site Church, Externally Focused Church, House Church, Future Church, Ancient Future Church, <laughs> Blogging Church, and Prevailing Church. Most of the books simply share best practices gleaned from successful churches. If you can put people inside the walls these days, you can write a book about the church. And the problem is people get inside walls for a bunch of reasons. Not always biblical ones. Not always ultimately what God had in mind when he said, I would have a people for myself, a people for my own possession, who would be about something. And they would have an agenda that would govern and rule in their lives. And when they collect together and connect, they would have an appointment into this world. Well, if it's true that all these books are being written some of them are being read. I don't think there's a vast... Quite honestly, I won't ask for a show of hands. Of How many of y'all have read any of these books? I would dare say, I don't know who's reading these books. I think they're the peculiar people in the church. They're pastors and peculiar people who read books like this. So into the church comes people with a wide diversity of ideas about church. Or very little idea about church. And so welcome to the land of great dysfunction. Because we don't know what we're supposed to be doing together. And we don't really know what church membership really is. So I think a process is critical. John Stott has recently wrote a book called The Living Church. John Stott would be a uh, rather impressive, uh, scholastic, uh, academic theologian, but also one who's functioned as a pastor for many, many years. And the subtitle of the book is The Confessions of a Lifelong Pastor. He's getting towards the end of his life. He's pastored in, in England for many, many years. Listen to what he says. He says, as we begin to consider the essential marks of a living church, I'm making three assumptions. First, I'm assuming that we are all committed to the church. Right? Okay. And he will back up and he will, he will realize that, whoa, time out. Committed to the church has its own definitions too, doesn't it? Right? What, what do you mean by commitment? What do I mean by commitment? What does the Bible mean by commitment to the church? You know, today, in every church setting in America in particular, you probably have three general sets of people. You have those who are 
sort of in the, in the dating realm, to borrow Josh Harris's image here, you have those who are kind of playing the field in the church. Right? I have to use old terminologies. I realize if you're a teenager or probably a pivot age person, no one uses playing the field anymore. There's a different term for that. Just bear with me. Playing the field just meant years ago that you were just dating here and dating here and going with that one a couple times and this one over here or going with nobody. You know, just, just kind of playing the field, not committed to really anybody. So you have people in the church world. That's how they go to church. I'm going here, and then I'm going there sometimes. And if there's a cool concert over here or something happened in this church over there, then I go to this one that time, or my friend invited me to this one. And I'm just kind of all over the place, and I'm nowhere sometimes. Then you got those folks who are dating the church. And they're a little bit, you know, more like, more like going with one person more exclusively than everybody else. But you still kind of got your feet in other places. But you're kind of around this one more than another. But you're not all completely committed And so there is going to come a day, there is going to come a day when you will want out of that relationship, right? It's like a dating relationship. I mean, why do you just date that person? Why don't you marry them? Well, because I'm not sure I want to make this mess permanent, you know? I just want to kind of get the best out of it and be able to walk away from the part I don't like. Well, that's the way people treat church. It's like, you know, I kind of like the Sunday meeting. Well, to be quite honest with you, I don't kind of like the music part of the Sunday meeting. I just like the other part. So I I, I come for that. And you you go to any other meeting? No, I don't really go to anything else. And uh, and every once in a while, I attend somewhere else. And that's dating. You're dating the church. Not committed to the church. And then there'd be some people who have married the church. They have walked the aisle and they have said, you know, with all of the strengths and weaknesses that are in this place and these people, uh, I am committed to being here. I'm committed to being a part of their lives and I'm committed for them to be a part of my life. Right, so you have this variety. So he starts with the assumption that we're all committed to the church. Quite honestly, we're not all committed to the church. But he says, we are not only Christian people, we are also church people. We're not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly <laughs> an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. So then, the reason why we are committed to the church is that God is so committed. That's why we talk about being committed to the church. Now, let let me just point something out here. Because this is very popular today. Spirituality is popular. And, and you marry spirituality with individuality, which is popular in America. And you come up with a real recipe for something very strange that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. Okay, we come to this book and we all want to figure out, how do we relate to God? And we treat this as though it's a personal letter from God to us on how to relate to Him. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This is not a personal letter. When you read the Bible, you find its context always. I might be able to extract Philemon from that. You know, the little book of Philemon. Every other book, particularly the books that teach the church about church life, is written to a collection of people. Even the ones with individual titles on us, we'll see today, Titus and Timothy. Those individual books are written to the body. They're, they're having to do with life together and the relationship we have with one another. So to extract ideas from this corporate setting is to absolutely, definitely put yourself in the crosshairs of bad interpretation and bad practice. Isn't it interesting that God, when he decided he wanted to be understood by people, he would write things down and he would give it to us. Isn't it interesting that that's the setting into which he wrote? He didn't write an individual letter to us. He wrote a collective letter to us to teach us about himself. If you extract the collection dynamic out, you're going to have a hard time really understanding God. See, this is what ends up happening. And I know that in the church today, probably here today, there'd be some who have walked with the church only to be disappointed by the church. Maybe you walked in, you had great expectations for how people would relate to you and they, they didn't do that. Or worse than that, you've been involved in a church where there was failure of people, there were schisms, you felt betrayed by somebody, let down by a leader, Uh, some people in the church you felt like turned on you and so there was backstabbing that went on. As tragic as it is that those things happen, 
you do realize those events posture us to see something about God. That if you extract all those events out of your life, you don't get to see or understand something about God as a result. So most of us are trying to go find the perfect church and one that won't have any of these issues. You understand, God wasn't interested in you ever finding the perfect church. In heaven, you'll find the perfect church. So there's only one way to get there, and we're not encouraging you to do that this morning. So why, why such a process of church membership, and why draw such attention to being committed to the church? Three quick reasons before I get into the text. One, because God is so committed and intentional about the church. You cannot escape that. All the instruction is to the church in the New Testament. Second, because our times demand adjustment in being committed to the church. We live in a time where commitment is a frail commodity in the world in which we live. Listen, it, it almost ought to be in some ways. I mean, I, I'm, I, am, I would want to live on another, planet, uh, another country. I want to be an American. But in some ways, America, being American is sort of an insult as well. If you really think about what it involves being an American. It's like, you know, we're, we're very not committed. We want new things, new ideas, the latest gadget. We're ready to discard things like that. And it's, it's seeped into important areas of our life. Like marriage is becoming disposable. And if it's difficult, just get rid of it. Because after all, God would want me to be happy. He wouldn't want me to be struggling in a situation like that. Would you transform or transfer that thought into the church? Man, well, who would want you to be in a church? God would want you to be happy. He wouldn't want you to be in a church where there's challenge, struggle. You might have to forgive someone. God wouldn't want that. Goodness, no. And and so we've created a culture that's church hopping like it's on steroids. You know, most church growth, which I, I thank God for folks who come from other places. We've had folks leave here and go to other places. I I thank God even more so, quite honestly, for those who come in lost and find the gospel and come into the church as a result of evangelism, much more the way in which the church should grow. But today, folks have a tendency to stay for a few years till they've used up the newness and then just move on. That should not be the church. That's a blight on the church when we can only tolerate each other for that long. And then we need some new fetish to scratch us. Number three, because the church is not just a hospital, it's an army on a mission. I want to highlight the tone of how the New Testament speaks to the church today. This is going to help us understand the church. Because the church is not just a hospital. It is a hospital. But it's not just a hospital. It is, it is an army to be mobilized on a mission. Now, this is why, and I'm going to talk a little bit about pastoral ministry, because I think pastors are to create the New Testament tone in the church. This is why sometimes when you're interacting either with the Word of God being preached or with a counseling meeting or just a casual conversation with any of the pastoral team, you may at some point be experiencing great care and encouragement and sympathy for where your life is. And at other points, feel like you're being kicked in the pants. It's like, well, what's up with that? You were awful nice to me at this point. (laughs) Well, because the church is both a hospital and an army. It is both here to patch up the brokenness of our lives, to care for the afflicted and the wounded. And in that process, there's no membership process, right? You don't need to be a member of a hospital. You might need to have insurance, but you don't need to be a member of a hospital. You just show up, and its job is to care for the wounded. But how many of you know the Marines don't take everybody? How many of you know in the beginning they make it as hard as possible for you to survive the entry process? Because when they go to mobilize, they don't want the yeah-yeah out there with them. Because they can't do their job. They can't mobilize if you got, you know, well, that's not the way I like it. Do we have to get up so early? Why are you cutting my hair like this? You know, (laughs) they put you out of the Marines for stuff like that. They just say, thanks for the visits. You're not going to work out. Well, what do you do? Seriously, what do you do with the fact that the church is in a war? 
The Bible uses a lot of language to describe the church at war. That we take up arms in the kingdom of God. That we expand the front lines of the kingdom into the darkness. And we do so with skill and, and gifting of God in our lives. And lives that are devoted to God and spiritual disciplines in our life. So if a pastor is being a pastor, he is not just stroking you. There will be points when he is shoving you. Now, I I, I want to inform you about that because this is part of the membership process. I mean, I inform people from the first class that we do that, you know, this is not a customer service relationship we're trying to establish. You know, when you show up at the Marine recruiting office, you know, they're not interested in customer relations. They're trying to let you know we're about something. You want to be about it with us? Because we're going to do more before 9 a.m. than the rest of the world does, right? That's, their, that's attractive for a few. <laughs> There's an aspect that, welcome to the kingdom of God. Yet you want to come after me? Jesus would tell people, you want to follow me? Lay down everything and take up your cross. Well, Jesus, wait, I'm wounded. (laughs) I'm coming because my life is beat up. You're telling me to take up a cross. That's going to hurt me more. (laughs) You understand? That's the church, though. So, you know, you might get the purple heart, but you're going back out on the battlefront. And so you should be both cared for by the church and mobilized by the church. Now, if you open up to 1 Timothy, there's a section of scriptures. It begins in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And Titus, that would be known, not from the Bible, but just from those who've studied the Bible, as the pastoral epistles. And they would be called pastoral epistles because they are dealing with the pastoral dynamics of the church. They're not letters to Timothy on, hey, Timothy, how to have a great life, how to have your best life now, even, Timothy. It's, Timothy, how to be a pastor. Timothy, this is what the atmosphere of the church should be like. This is what you should be influencing the church to do and become. Here's how you handle the church, Timothy. Titus is being told the same thing. So these are pastoral epistles that inform the influence and tone that pastors are to have. They are written, I believe, at an interesting time frame in the church's history. You are... You're really... You're 30 years into Paul's apostolic ministry. Paul writes all three of these letters... We have the benefit of 30 years of his experience and walking with God and planting churches and watching them succeed and fail, watching them have issues that helped them along in the cause and, and watching them have issues that hindered them and brought problems to the church. So we're going to benefit from 30 years of apostolic ministry in these letters. And the church now is about 30 years old. We're in the mid-60s A.D. So it's about 30 years since Christ has been crucified and the church has been birthed in Jerusalem. It's been planted all over the world already. And issues are coming up in the church 30 years later. Probably 30 minutes later, quite honestly. But 30 years later... There are significant challenges facing the church. There are significant issues facing the church. These, these issues are not like, not dislike uh, what we face today as a church. In that time, there, was, there were external pressures, if you will, that came on the church from different perspectives, and they would pressure the church in different categories. In that time, you had Greek philosophy, which the, the realm in which the church is, is traveling into, it's traveling towards Greece, it's traveling towards a Greek-informed world where there is Greek philosophy that forms people's ideas about how you live life and what's important. These ideas are in people and they're getting saved and those ideas are in people even though they're saved. And then there's people who are on the fringes of the church who are greatly influenced by those ideas and they're bringing those ideas. And not just Greek philosophy, but Jewish Religious traditions are in the audience of those who are getting saved. Deeply in the audience of those who are getting saved. So they're meeting Christ. And here, realistically, guys, we meet Christ and we've got a lot of baggage in our ideas. A lot of baggage. That's why the Bible calls our minds to be renewed. So here they are coming into the church with a lot of bad religious traditional ideas. And those ideas are going to seek to find a place in the church. 
And then you add to that, you've you got this Roman culture, this pagan culture, that's all about pleasure and just enjoy things and give yourself to all the pleasure that you can possibly get your hands on. Now that's coming in with people into the church as well. And so this influence is in the church when these letters are being written. Now, one of the things I want to make an important point of is these little issues, when they're presented in the church, they're not presented as though they're trying to overthrow orthodoxy. When you read these issues that are kind of, they're almost like they're chewing away the edges of Christianity. They're not, they don't, you know, if this was America, they're not coming to overthrow America and make it a communist state. They just want a few pieces of real estate. They just want Florida and California and Iowa. That's all they want. And so they're coming for a piece of the pie. When you read the New Testament, if you read it as though every false teaching ultimately has as its desire to overthrow anything about Jesus Christ and make this a completely pagan practice, that's not the case. And when you see Paul's adamancy, his adamant about protecting doctrine, you you do need to realize he's not just trying to protect Jesus Christ, whether he was a man or not, whether he went to the cross or not. Now, he is protecting that, but he picks on issues that seem to be on the edge a little bit. So there's a, a sense in which Paul knows this is what's coming into the church. My last few letters are going to be to protect the church and give it wisdom for the future. So Paul's provision in your outline for the coming challenges is one, establish and maintain apostolic doctrine. That needs to be a priority in the church. Establish and maintain apostolic doctrine. Second, appoint leaders who have the ability to teach sound doctrine effectively because the guys who are coming in with false ideas, they're effective. And they're bringing an effectiveness. These guys are good orators. They can speak and influence others. The ones who teach in the church had better be able to do that as well. So appoint leaders who are able to teach sound doctrine effectively and who have the character that is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, this is what Paul's trying to create in these letters. So these pastoral epistles are trying to shove pastors into a place of creating a setting that's going to accomplish these things. Now, immediately, these pastoral officials are going to create what I'm going to call a pastoral paradox. Because there's elements in which pastoral care and the tone and influence of the church should be that hospital dynamic. It should be very caring. It should be sympathetic. It should be full of compassion. And we should hear that in the pulpit. And we should hear it as we interact with one another and how we handle truth and how we walk with one another's lives. But as we read today, that's those same pastoral epistles are also going to call on the church to be protective of something, to be guarding of something, to be very careful about something. So there is a reality that there are points in which pastoral care is going to look compassionate and careful. And then other times where it's going to look parental and restraining. In your life. This isn't good cop, bad cop. This isn't, well, I'm going to go to that other pastor. He's more compassionate. Listen, the tone of pastoral care has to have both. If it's being informed by these books in Scripture, it has to have both in it. John Stott, in his book, says, On the one hand, some preachers have a very faithful, prophetic ministry. Speaking with authority. They show great courage in declaring God's word. Some of you guys love those moments, right? I've told you everybody in here is going to got a left brain, right brain thing going on. It's like there are literally some of you that it, it, it's when it's a hammer message that you let me know, man, brother, don't don't hold it back. You know, like there's blood dripping from the side of your head. That was a hard message, man. Don't hold it back. Make us bleed more. You know, it's like some love the prophetic ministry, and quite honestly, the church has to have that. He goes on and says, there, there, there's others, other preachers, excel in pastoral love and care. Their favorite words are tolerance and compassion. It is not easy to combine prophetic witness and pastoral care, firmness and gentleness, discipline and compassion. I think it was Chad Walsh, an American Episcopal layman, who first defined preaching as, this is great, disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. 
If you might, I, I'm thinking of getting that emblazoned somewhere <laughs> across the front here. Because I, I think that is a solid aim of preaching. And it needs to be a solid aim of those of us who are receiving preaching. It is appropriate this morning that if you have grown too comfortable in aspects of your Christian life, that preaching would disturb you today. But yet there are some who have come in, who have come in very troubled and disturbed in their life, who need to come in and find the church to be a place of comfort and care and the words of life from the pulpit addressing that. So I hope it's a little bit of a challenging thing here to walk this out. John Calvin said a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving off the wolves. So listen, if this is true of pastors, and this is the way in which Paul is informing pastors, pastors are called to bring that into the church. This is a description of what the church should feel like and sound like. It should feel both comforting and disturbing at times to us, which is very relevant for, are you interested in being a member here? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, when I, when I come to church, I just like to be encouraged. I just like to be told I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. Just, you know, so um, now maybe I can recommend the church to you, but honestly, I can't recommend this one to you. And we try to be as clear about that as possible. In, in the process of membership. Now, honestly, if this church leans too much toward prophetic realities from the Word of God, that's not healthy either. So, and, and any of the leaders would know, uh, I have spent some time in the last year asking how we're doing. Are we leaning too far in one direction in terms of how we sound? But you should experience both in a healthy church setting. Now look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 here, verse 14. Just walk through a couple of passages with us and see how this applies to our consideration of church membership. These pastoral epistles, Paul declares his intention in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul says, it's necessary for me at this juncture in my apostolic career, and at this point in the history of the church, it's necessary for me to write to you for this reason, so that one might know how one ought to behave in the church, the household of God, how one ought to We ought to relate a certain way. We ought to walk a certain way. We ought to come together a certain way. That's that's how the Bible phrases this. So it imposes upon us an expectation. Because the church belongs to God, right? This is a fatal flaw in the American church because the country belongs to us, right? I mean, check the government. They don't realize that. But supposedly it belongs to us. Well, the church, we think, belongs to us too. So... We ought to be able to address some things. Okay, we ought to be able to vote on some stuff and change some things around here. And you're watching that happen in mainline denominations where the voting dynamic, which is an American thing, this is God's church and he's not asking for a vote. It's his church. So we come and discover. And so he's, Paul's writing to Timothy saying, Timothy, this is how it ought to be in the church, which belongs to God. This is how it ought to be. And this is what you ought to believe because the church is the pillar and support of something, of The truth. So our belief and our activity is in the crosshairs in these letters. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, David Wells argues that the church is weak because it has, quote, exchanged the sensibilities of modern culture for the truth of Christ. And that's a phrase worth meditating on a little bit. The church is weak because it has exchanged the sensibilities, you know, It just makes sense. It's what everybody believes. It's what the majority is thinking. It just makes sense. And we've exchanged those of the modern culture for the truth of Christ. And let me just pick on something here for a second. I can't resist this. Because Matt 
quoted from Psalm 150 today. Okay? Come with me. Y'all remember that psalm? And he was very careful and very helpful to tell us. It informs us about when to worship, why to worship, and how to worship. Right? Now, I just noticed this. Right? I'm not finding fault with anyone in particular, just most of us all together. Praise him, verse 4, praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Now, yeah, I could fault Matt if he had found a verse that's obscure and it's nowhere else in Scripture. But these kind of admonitions are throughout the Psalms and demonstrated for us in other passages. But the sensibilities of our culture, oh, dance in church? We don't dance in church, you know? It's church. It would be odd, wouldn't it? The majority is not dancing in church. That would be a strange thing to do, dance in church. Well, for some of us, I know clapping in church is strange. Until you read it all over the Bible. Shouting in church is strange. Until you read it all over the Bible. Now, to walk into a church and not find these things means the church is following some other pattern. Right? Come on. And this now seems peculiar, you know, awkward. Dance in church. Now, let me, let me just tell you, if this was a wedding reception and Matt was playing Play That Funky Music White Boy, <laughs> there would be some of you here who would put on a clinic for us. Now, I'm just curious as to why that gets reserved for that and not here. That's right. Amen. Right, any of y'all been to a concert lately? Right? They like lighters, you know? A song starts and it's a favorite, right? Whoa, the crowd roars! Woo! Like they're high-fiving each other, you know? Woo! Peter Frampton, 1978! Woo! They're just going nuts over a song. And then you throw a song up there about God, and it's kind of like... Hey, you can light your lighters. Fire alarm works around here. Light them for God, man. Light it up for God. But we don't, we don't do that. Right? Sporting events. Please, please. Sporting events, even golf, which is intended to help us nap on Sunday afternoon. Do you hear these guys now? It's like when Tiger Wood putts, it's like he's trained the audience. It used to just be. Now he goes to putt and his second it leaves his putter. It's like there's this one loud, obnoxious guy that follows him from green to green who yells that every time. Maybe it's his caddy. I don't know. But he's trained the audience. It's golf. How did you do that? These people are all polite. They're on drugs. They're medicated. (laughs) But they get jazzed over the possibility that he could sink the 30-footer. Listen, and here we are singing about God. And it's weird if you do any of that stuff and people might look at you. We have exchanged the word of God for the sensibilities of our culture. Without question. And I picked on a very innocent thing just now, didn't I? There's a lot of other issues in our lives where things have just become more sensible to us. We are ruled by the majority. Everybody else does it. Go with the flow. That's not the church. The church has never been called to go with the flow. The church is an unusual place on earth because the earth is headed in the wrong direction. Life spins backwards here. And the moment you point in the right direction, you are peculiar. And if you're not prepared to be peculiar, you have a really hard time being a Christian. And if you're not prepared to be a Christian, then do you really have any cause to be a member of a church? So this goes back to church membership. He goes on and he says, If Wells is right, then the church is no longer the church. For in the process of explaining his purpose for writing to Timothy... The Apostle Paul defines the church by its relationship to the truth. 
From what we have seen in 1 Timothy so far, in these first three chapters leading up to that verse, the kind of conduct the apostle has in mind includes proper doctrine, proper gender relations, and proper leadership in the church. So in other words, the Bible is going to weigh in on doctrine of what it is that we believe. Then it's going to weigh in on how we view the roles of men and women in society, in the church. Then it's going to weigh in on what it has to say about leadership in the church, how that should be raised up, how we should relate to it. The Bible is going to weigh in on all those things. And then Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to tell the church, listen, church, These matters are already established. They're anchored right here. Make sure you are tethered to these issues. So that if I were this morning to raise a question to you about any of those issues, would you find your way back to Timothy for your position? Would you be here this morning saying, I am am tethered to the word of God's revelation in this area? Okay. Let's just make church lively. Okay. Let's, Let's deal with real issues. Right. Today, if you survey the yellow pages, the ads in the newspaper, the marquees of church buildings, you will find something that you would not have found just 20 years ago. You will find that when the name of the church is given and under it, the pastor's name is there, you will find a Mr. and Mrs. pastor in many, many churches. Some of them pastored by the same people that just 20 years ago, it was just Mr. who was the pastor. And now it's Mr. and Mrs. who is the pastor. Now, my question to you, in spite of how you may feel about me picking on that subject, is here's the obvious question for the church. Have we, in the last 20 years, gotten a clearer understanding of the Bible? And therefore, that's why this has changed. Or has the culture moved in the last 40 years to a different place about gender roles and responsibilities. And the church is borrowing from what Mr. Riken says, the sensibilities of modern culture. It just makes sense because so many people are saying it. And it's kind of majority rule and it seems odd not to go in that direction because of the movement of our culture. God did not call us, church, to be tethered to the culture. The culture is going to move and move again and again and again. We are called to be tethered to the truth, to the word of God. So if the Bible has become more clear in the last 20 years, by all means, let's all jump on board. But if the culture has moved, the church dare not move on many, many, many issues. See, when it comes to Paul's advice to Timothy as a pastor and his advice to the church, is he's called us to be tethered, to be anchored to something. We're called that way as pastors. At best, all we are is a franchise, a biblical franchise. That's all the church is. None of us own it. We can't go outside the building and flip the M upside down and call ourselves Whackdonalds. You know, it's like, just thought we'd do something different, you know? We're Whackdonalds now, man. Come on in. The home office is going to have a problem with that. You know, leave the M where it was. The golden arches need to stay that way. You're just a franchise. We're just a franchise. I I I don't get to have my own script when I step into this pulpit. I don't get to take the ideas that I liked growing up and I was so sick of seeing people treated this way and I'm going to preach on that. None of us get to do that. Pastors don't get to do that. Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, you don't get to do that. You need to accurately handle the word of truth. Timothy, accurately divide the word of truth. You are already under a commission to say certain things and you don't have permission to color outside those lines. That's the church. So to be a member of the church means certain things in this word are going to be held by this community and by this pulpit a certain way. And it's absolutely appropriate that it would be that way. Titus chapter 1, I'll give you a quick admonition here. Titus 1, verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, speaking to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. The church has an order to it. There is a blueprint. God has designed it a certain way. Chapter 2, verse 15 of Titus. Titus, declare these 
things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Declare these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Listen, like even right now, some would be here feeling like, you know, it's, Keith, it's just the way you say things sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's not just what you say. It's the way you say it sometimes. Well, because if I'm sitting in the classroom next to Timothy, I am being told here to command and teach these things. Command them, Timothy, and teach these things with authority. Not because there's any authority resident here, but because this is the authority and it's already spoken and there's no wiggle room and God's not looking for it to be adjusted. It's his church. It's way too important to him. Chapter 5, verse 7. Command these things as well so that you may be without reproach. If we're interested in the church being without reproach, then there are certain things we are required to command. Chapter 6, verse 2 of 1 Timothy. Right in the middle of the verse there. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with, with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy or for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, etc., There is a program to be taught. There is a revelation from God that's already established for the church. Philip Ryken says the church is not only a home for God and for his people. It is also a home for God's truth. How many churches today, the truth of God is not welcomed anymore. Now, people are welcome. Bring the people into the hospital. Bring them in. Let them be cared for. But the word of God's not welcomed. There's no way to care for men's souls without the Word of God. You cannot do it. You might look sympathetic, but you're putting band-aids on eternal diseases with whatever it is you treat outside of God's truth. One last thought here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, very sobering reality. Paul has said to establish doctrine and establish leaders who will teach sound doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 1, he warns. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, stop just for a second, right? Right now, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what are these people teaching? Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons? Oh, this has got to be horrific. Look what he says next. Verse 3 who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What? Paul, what are you freaking out about? Because Paul knew that they just act like they're after California and Florida. Once they get California and Florida, they'll go after the next thing and the next thing because it's false teaching. It's based in that which is false And so it just comes off like, well, it's just a little piece here. It's a little thing that's being chewed on here at the edge. I mean, you realize the most scathing letter in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Galatians, I believe, would be the most scathing one. And in the book of the letter to the Galatians, the issue in Galatia is not that there is a group of people who have crept into the Galatian church who no longer believe Jesus Christ came or that he did anything on the cross They are promoting atheism. That's what they're about. And complete paganism and asking people to devote their lives to idols. No. That's not the case. They are people who are a part of orthodox Christianity, but they just want to add something. See, they got a strong traditional religious background from their days of Judaism, and you just want to add back in the rite of circumcision. Just believe if you're really going to be a follower of Christ, you have to be circumcised. I mean, we've got to bring a little bit of the traditions of Moses in here with us. That doesn't sound all that bad. Paul flips out over it. He tells them, you've fallen from grace, you people who were trying to introduce these kind of ideas. 
at this moment, Paul doesn't seem like he's greeting you at the hospital door. Paul has a baseball bat in his hand. Paul is using his other voice. He's using his outside voice. He's using his <laughs> drive-off-the-wolves voice at this moment. So you, you might have done a double take. It's like, man, I just met with Paul last week. He didn't talk to me that way. <laughs> because the church has to protect something as well. And pastoral ministry has to protect something as well. Now, in this realm, there's going to be a tendency into two categories here. One is ultimately destructive. And you see that in Timothy. He's going to point out in a couple of cases, in the beginning of chapter 1, he urges Timothy, stay in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Well, I was going to Macedonia. You remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Well, what kind of different doctrine? In order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God. That's by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So you have false teachers who have introduced vanity into the church. Just you're wasting people's time. You're emphasizing things that are wasting people's time. And then you have later on that first chapter... Verse 18, Timothy is told, I charge and entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, here's, here's where false teaching goes in two categories. It goes into the realm of distraction or into the realm of destruction. Not every false teaching does the same thing to the church. There are realms of false teaching that will never shipwreck everyone's faith. But they will distract the church terribly from its mission and from that which is most important. Right, if, you, if you go into any, almost any church and ask, you know, do you believe the Bible? Oh, we, we teach and believe the Bible here. Okay, I, I, we'll talk about this if you come to the new members class. It's not whether a church says it teaches the Bible that's critical for you to discover. What's critical for you to discover is what that church emphasizes from the Bible. That's what makes churches distinct. That's what makes some of them into the realm of distraction. I mean, I'm sorry, there is a whole class of churches out there today who who are making on a weekly basis a bigger deal about your faith and the power of your faith and how to control your life and how to be positive. And, And it's like the powers of heaven have been unlocked into your personal little kingdom so that you can turn them loose and have whatever it is that you say and you want. Can I tell you, that is a huge distraction. That's not what the Bible is about. You've taken speculations and twisted little bitty verses as though, well, he spoke that and this happened, so your words mean, and twisting these things and then teaching hour after hour to the church about how to get get your words right so you can get your world right. Speculation. The Bible doesn't present those things with that kind of clarity that I've got a revelation from heaven about. And yet churches are devoted to those things. And you ask them if they teach the Bible. Of course we teach the Bible. Yeah, the most obscure parts of it. You know, what's most clear, what's most clear is the person and work of Christ and the mission that results in our lives as a result for this brief moment upon earth that we have to glorify God and to bring the kingdom into this world. That's what's most clear. To get into a church that emphasizes something else is to get into false teaching in the form of de-emphasizing what really mattered for the sake of something else. And some have de-emphasized the truth to the extent of bringing destruction into people's lives. I think, I think the universalism that's in the church is of that nature. Now, let me, let me close this up today. Matt, you can go ahead and get ready to come. Um, does... Does this concern you? It obviously concerns me. It obviously concerns Paul as he counsels pastors on here's how you lead your church. Here's how you look for the tone and the atmosphere of your church to be. It obviously troubles Paul. He's very concerned. This is the last letters he's going to write in his career. He's entrusting them to the church for preserving the church for years to come.
But I would submit to you today, it's not enough that this matters to the Bible or that it matters to pastors. It needs to matter to every one of us because we are the church and we walk with one another and we bring these things to life. And so we, we need to understand how the Bible feels about these issues. We need to be well-informed and have convictions that are tethered to the Word of God. No matter where the, church, the, the culture goes, no matter how reasonable it sounds, we go back to the Word of God and we say, does it square with this? And if it does not, well, then you don't have an audience with me. I won't be following that. I won't be interested in pursuing that. I will not be encouraging that in your life. If you come in for counseling, you, you could get whiplash. But having listened to the counsel of the world as the world identifies why it is that you tick the way you do. And then you sit down and you have biblical counsel that comes from the Bible and it introduces to you the doctrine of sin and you've been hanging around the therapy movement. The therapy movement tell you that it was everybody else but you that's the problem. And then the Bible turns around and puts you in the crosshairs and says, well, no, actually you are the biggest problem in the room. And you're kind of like, oh, I'm never going to see him again. He's so uncaring. And uh, well, It's like we're not tethered to the Bible because it's that revelation that actually can set you free. I'll warn you, you tether yourself to the therapy idea that everybody else needs to get fixed before you can get fixed. And for the rest of the life that I know you, you will be a struggling, miserable person. Because let me just tell you, they're not planning on getting fixed. They're going to stay just like they are for the rest of their lives. And if the condition of your life is dependent upon them, then you have no hope. You don't have any hope. Well, I'll get rid of those people, get some new ones. You just get their issues next. But if sin is the issue, oh, Lord, thank you. There's a remedy for that. I can get set free from sin. I can't get set free from you, but I can get set free from sin in my life. Well, here's what I'd like for us to do this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to invite up our 29 folks who are going to come and receive both a gift and our prayers. Gift is over there. I need some help with those gifts. Gee, I don't know if you can help me with that or Pete's got a crew to help me with that. But I'm going to need those bags in just a moment. Um, but let me introduce you to our graduating class. And we were about to start another one. I'm hoping I didn't lose the... Oh, here we go. All right, you can hold your applause until they are all present up here. Daniel Ayamaseba, Randy Albert, Flo and Ron Alman, Aaron and Zach Allen, Sid Bardfield, Debbie and Peter Bassel, Donnie and Judy Bourgeois, Josh Boyd, Megan Brechtel, Corey Brock, Jennifer Brock, Brandon Kane, Amy DeLise, Kelly Douglas and Billy Douglas, Aaron Edmondson, Jesse and Diane Gilliatt, Jason G, Catherine Lahare. Gail Petrie, Carlos and Ruth Ramirez, Sylvester, uh, forgive me, Sylvester, Tumasuimi, you can grade me later, Sylvester, and Jesse Varnado. You guys could just come up, just stand across the front here. When we are joined by Christ to the body of Christ, you don't need to sign a membership card in a church. You are, you're a member of the body of Christ. By God's doing, you are in Christ and you are part of that body. But see, all of this revelation in the scripture is written to the local church, to the place in which relationships happen and we know each other's name and we walk together. We go through disappointments with one another and we support one another. We have fights. We turn into real family. There's challenges. We wrestle with practices and doctrine and together we are the church. And so here gathered with us are folks who some of them have been in the church for many years, have just gone through the membership process officially. Uh, some are new to the church. But what would be true of these members is all of us who are part of the body of Christ have an obligation to them. 
we have an obligation to these folks right here. And when I, when I read Mark Driscoll's quote about pastors who couldn't supply a working definition for the church, immediately, of course, my mind went, well, Keith, do you have one? And I, I think I did. It didn't take too long to come to mind. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Why? To show forth the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, for me, is the working definition of the church. Which means we, as a church, are called to show forth the excellencies of God to one another and to the world. So today, these guys who are becoming members, we have an obligation to them. That in our life, in our ideas, what we hold dear, what's important to us, what we want to transfer to the next generation, all those things are to show forth the excellency of God. We're not here to show forth the culture. We're not here to show off ourselves, our ideas. We're here to show forth the excellency and the wisdom of God to them, to the world. But all these guys who are standing before you would have heard this through the class. Uh, They are here to do the same to you. They didn't sign on as customers. They're not here to run to the complaint line if all of you don't do what you're supposed to do. They recognize they're called to serve you. They're called to lay down their lives for you and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so having been through the class, having studied the material, believe their heart's intention is to today lay their lives down for the glory of God being taken up in the church. So let's pray for them. You stand up with me. I'm going to pray and and that's going to close us in a song and Each of you guys, please don't run off until you've received a a little gift that we have for you in commemorating your day of commitment. Lord, thank you that this day is even possible. For we once were enemies of yours. And in our hearts, hostile to you ever ruling over us. Lord, we wanted our own way. Until the kindness and mercy of God appeared and you peeled back the hardness of our hearts to allow us to see a God who was worthy of every ounce of who we are. Lord, thank you that that day came to us so that this day could come to us so that we could be included in your body on this earth for just a short period of time until we are gathered in that gathering place of all of your elect for all eternity. Lord, this morning we celebrate being gathered together to you and also into this local body to be intentional in our love, in our care, our support, our admonition, our correction, our advancing of your kingdom together. So Lord, this morning as these folks state their commitment to you ultimately and to us, God, together as a church, we state ours as well. Lord, we are committed to you and therefore we are committed to your church. Lord, as we look upon these faces, we are committed to these that you have sovereignly added here, brothers and sisters in this household. They matter to us. May they receive our commitment to them to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to show forth the excellencies of Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.